on-demand coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Friday edition of the PFT PM Podcast. And let me thank the PFT PM Posse for the recommendation and the persistence in getting Chris Sims to do the afternoon podcast. We went for an hour yesterday. I think he would have gone for another hour. I'd rather do like two or three different interviews with him one hour each than take so much advantage of him one time that he says, don't ever call me again. So it was fun. It was revealing. It was compelling. And Stats loved it. Stats will never admit that he likes anything unless he loves it. There's no in-between. He either loves it or he hates it or it's just okay. But he won't say anything unless he loves it. And he said that he was like leaning in multiple times listening to the stories that Chris Sims was telling and to the back and forth. The hot soup. The boiling hot soup. What in the world, Jabbar Gaffney? That's a boss move. You tell somebody twice, don't throw soap on me anymore, or we're going to fight. So you want to throw soap? I'm going to throw soup. There's a certain poetry to it. I had forgotten that J.R. Smith did that. I don't pay enough attention to other sports to really have an understanding of the ins and outs of what happened with J.R. Smith and the soup throwing. I guarantee you if there's another soup incident going forward, I will be paying attention. Oh, I will. I will be very cognizant of all of the specifics, including the type of soup. Chris thought that was a dumb question. I just need to be able to visualize what the guy looks like once the soup has been thrown on him. And you have to know the type of soup in order to properly conjure the image of the victim of the soup throw. And it can't have been boiling hot soup because there would have been some burning. If it's, what does it take to boil? 210? Is it 210 or is it 180? I think it's 210. 210 is when liquid water becomes vapor. That would probably cause some second degree burns at a minimum. All right, let's get through some topics today. Let's answer some questions. We didn't answer many yesterday. I tried to sprinkle them through the one hour. If I would have answered or asked more of them to Chris Sims, I think we would have definitely gone for at least two hours. So ask your questions for Chris Sims the next time he's on. Save them if they weren't asked. And we'll answer some questions specific to today, the things happening today, coming up before we wrap. I see that Mason Rudolph got a text message. Good luck in rookie minicamp, said Ben Roethlisberger to Mason Rudolph. I think the media got it kind of twisted around a little bit. He's a competitor, Mason Rudolph said, regarding the comments that were made last Friday by Ben Roethlisberger. The media didn't quit get it twisted around. But Mason, you're already being properly indoctrinated. Blame it on the media. When in doubt, it's our fault. When in doubt... It's not the responsibility of the people who say the thing that is inflammatory or controversial. When in doubt, it's our fault. How dare we for noticing it? What what gall do we have to actually repeat and interpret the words that people use? What a bunch of shitheads we are. 
He's a Hall of Fame quarterback, Rudolph said. He's a competitive guy. That's what I would expect. He's a longtime starter. I'm sure when we get in this building, in this room, we're going to be friends. And I'm going to let him do his thing and pick up what I can from him, but not bother him. Okay. Look, Rudolph's playing it the right way. And that probably drives Roethlisberger even more crazy. Rudolph, by being the the proper and and deferential rookie, Roethlisberger's probably thinking, man, that's driving me crazy. That makes me sick. I'd rather he be a little prick like I was. That was funny when we saw the comments from Tommy Maddox about how he thinks Ben's going to be respectful. That's got to be a jab at Ben in some way because my guess is Ben was unbearable when he was a rookie. Unbearable. And his teammates initially, they couldn't stand him. The stories I've heard over the years about how Ben was his first few years in the NFL, teammates wanting autographs for not their own personal collection of memorabilia, but because they had a foundation or they had something, can you sign this for me? And he didn't know. Really? I heard those stories a lot. I remember the story about Ben Roethlisberger being in Las Vegas and Jerome Bettis was having his retirement party in Las Vegas and Ben just didn't go. And he was in Las Vegas. It's not like, well, I can't make it that weekend. I have something to do in Ohio. He was in Las Vegas. Stories I've heard over the years. Plenty of stories. And those are just the ones that can be repeated. Actually, there really aren't many more stories than that. That's pretty much all the stories I've heard. I remember when he was facing his suspension. Things reached a critical mass in Pittsburgh. I was listening to Pittsburgh Talk Radio. And that day... It consisted of people calling in one after another to share their brush with Ben beef and how he was rude to them somewhere. It was nonstop. It's amazing he stayed with that team. And I think they were pondering the possibility of trading him at the time. He joked last week, maybe they're thinking about trading me now. I don't think they're going to do that. And again, I came not full circle because that means I'm back to where I was. I sound like I've come full circle because I'm griping about what he did last week. I remember after processing that, you know, it's not the smartest things in the world that he said and probably shouldn't have said anything. And why does he do that 93-7, the fan spot where the, the hosts are trying to get him to say things that are inflammatory. They're manipulating him a little bit, a little bit. They are. Why do you do all that? Yada, yada. I decided, you know what? I'd still rather have a guy who tells me what what's on his mind instead of playing these passive-aggressive games like Tom Brady currently is. And I came to the conclusion that because Ben Roethlisberger periodically vents his frustrations, maybe he's not going to have an implosion like Tom Brady could have because he apparently has internalized it all these years. And now that it's time to express it, he's unable to properly express it. I don't know. I probably don't know what I'm talking about. Speaking of the Patriots, Josh McDaniels had some comments about his departure that wasn't from the Patriots, his hiring by the Colts as head coach that wasn't. 
There's a lot that goes into those things. It can be very complicated. I'll say this. I've stated again and again that I definitely want to be a head coach again. At the same time, I love being here. This is my kids were born and raised. We've made a pretty special life here, and that's not an easy thing to leave. There's a lot to consider. Certainly leaving here, I don't want to take lightly ever. I would never take that lightly. It was a difficult process, and I'm very happy with the decision that we made and grateful to be here and continue working towards the 2018 season. That's fine. He just should have had that moment of clarity before other people made major life changes. To be present and employed by the Colts to eventually work with him. The moment of clarity doesn't come when you put pen to paper. The moment of clarity comes when other people make life changes based upon your word. And is it better that he didn't go than if he'd gone and been miserable and want out after a year or two, like Nick Saban did in Miami after the 2006 season, during the 2006 season? There was so much talk that year of of Saban wanting out. He's miserable in the NFL. He wants out. He wants out. You don't want that. Chris Ballard, the GM of the Colts, is right. Better to have it happen now and get someone who wants to be here than go through the next year or two of... McDaniels constantly driven by angst and despair and regret. It's not worth it. It is better that it happened now. I see that Saquon Barkley's at rookie minicamp. One of the first round picks who hasn't signed a contract yet. I would not set foot on the field without a contract. And I'm encouraged to see that more and more players are getting their contracts before they participate in rookie minicamp. Good for the teams for giving it to them and good for the players for wanting them. Saquon Barkley should have said, I want it. I'm not doing anything until you give me a contract, period. He plays one of the most dangerous positions in the sport, probably the most dangerous position. Running back, constantly hit, constantly worrying about Activity swarming around his legs, lower body, especially now with this new rule about lowering the helmet to initiate contact. You're going to see more low hits. Give me my contract. I want my security. I want it all now. Good to see Jim Kelly back out and about. He had that extensive 12-hour procedure six weeks ago or thereabouts. It was the day that we flew back from the league meetings in Orlando. So I think it's been a good six weeks. And now Jim Kelly at practice met Josh Allen. Josh Allen, hopefully for the Bills' sake, the next Jim Kelly. That's what they need. That's why they did what they did. That's why they made the move up. They talked about going to four. They talked about going to five. They ended up going to seven. Carson Wentz, the second overall pick a couple of years ago. Looks like the Eagles are going to go very slowly. They're not going to rush him. He'll be ready when he's ready. Like they did last year with Sidney Jones, the first-round pick who slid around two because of the torn Achilles, suffered during the pro day workout. They're going to wait, which if Nick Foles ends up playing, playing well week one then comes week two 
plays well week two. Then comes week three. At what point is Carson Wentz the backup to Nick Foles? Let's look at their schedule from that perspective. I I can't believe I haven't done that yet. It's been almost a month since the schedule came out. And I haven't looked at this from the perspective of could Nick Foles nail down the job and de facto take the job. You've got the Falcons in the opener. Okay, you win that one because Carson Wentz wasn't ready to play, so Foles plays. You got the mini buy on the back end of the Thursday game. You go to Tampa. Foles plays that one. Foles wins that one. You got the Colts and Frank Reich coming to town. What do you do then? If anybody knows how to crack the code on Nick Foles, it's going to be Frank Reich because he helped write the code. I don't know if they win that one. Then you go to Tennessee. Win that one, showdown with the Vikings. What did Foles do to the Vikings last year? Week six at the Giants. Looking to see where the bye is. Week nine bye. They got the Cowboys coming out of the bye. I I think this ends up being potentially awkward. If the Eagles are committed to taking their time with Carson Wentz, who tore his ACL in December, if Nick Foles plays well, if he doesn't play well, it, it doesn't matter. If he plays well, then what do you do? When do you make the change? A good problem to have is what some would say. And you know what I say to that, PFTPM Posse? The only good problem is no problem. And they would definitely have a problem. All right, one more topic before we get into your questions for today. I want to make sure I answer as many as possible instead of just rambling on about the news of the day. There really isn't a lot going on today. There hasn't been a lot going on this week relative to other weeks. We're two weeks removed from the draft. This Matt Patricia story ended up being the top story in the NFL, as I suspected it would be, even though it deals with something from 22 years ago. And I've wrestled with it. I've struggled with it. I I don't relish the fact that this has come up and it's something that people are interested in. It's a fascinating story. The idea that there was an indictment, a grand jury indicted Matt Patricia 22 years ago on aggravated sexual assault charges. The case was dismissed and no one ever knew about it. But somebody remembered it. Somebody alerted the Detroit News to it. There's no way that any reporter was killing time by doing criminal background checks on various Michigan sports figures and got lucky. There's no way that this just happened. Somebody with an agenda an agenda against Matt Patricia told the Detroit News about the situation. I don't know who it was. Somebody who knew about it. Somebody who doesn't like him. I doubt that it was the alleged victim unless the alleged victim is going to wait to speak later and chose not to speak about it right out of the gates because it would have been obvious that the alleged victim is the one who told the Detroit News, about it. Remember when that Peyton Manning dust-up from 1996 with the trainer at the University of Tennessee? Remember when that came back to fruition? Chances are that 
the former trainer is the one who was responsible for getting the word out that whatever it was, there was some document that got leaked. I can't remember what the posture was. I can't remember what the reason was, but there was a document that got leaked. And the thinking was that, that this is the, the person who allegedly was assaulted by Peyton Manning in the training room, still pushing and pushing and pushing for some sort of reckoning from Peyton Manning. Again, it doesn't matter who. What matters is someone did it. It, I, the, the timing, though, continues to fascinate me. I spoke about this today on PFT Live. For it to come out the night before Matt Patricia is due to meet to the media to start a rookie minicamp, the draft is over, free agency is over, things are slowing down. You know, you drop this out there in February, March, April, maybe it doesn't get the same traction because there are other things happening. The news cycle abhors a vacuum. Something is always going to be the top story in the NFL. You drop this out there at a time when there's no competition or less competition for attention, it becomes the top story without question. You throw on top of that, Matt Patricia and the Lions had 12 hours to come up with a plan for dealing with that press conference. I mean, it's diabolical, really from the standpoint of causing maximum mayhem. And I wonder how long the Detroit News knew about it before they went with it that Wednesday night. That happens. That happens. I've never done it, but I think it happens. I mean, when I have a story that's ready to be reported, it gets reported. I'm not going to hold on to it and wait for the right time. Oh, when can we when can we report this to put the subject of the story in the most compromising situation how do we get the biggest bang for the buck now i've i mean i it's one thing to hold a story until a monday morning like if you've heard something like if i hear something on a sunday night and i know it's going to make a bigger splash if we pull the sheet off of it on monday morning that's one thing but from the standpoint of causing the subject to be in the most compromised position that that's but I think like ESPN has done that from time to time with outside the lines investigations. They drop them at certain times in order to to get the biggest bang for the buck, but also make it the most indelicate for the subject of the story. And I guess it's okay, I don't know. I didn't I didn't go to journalism school, so I don't know what the ethics are of the timing of the release of a story. But it did put Matt Patricia in a tough spot. And he had to make a decision for Thursday. How do I deal with this? And see, I personally think it would have been better to just read this statement and not take any questions. Do the Bill Belichick. It's already been addressed. I've already said everything I'm going to say about it. Once you say that enough times, then it's over. He opted instead to try to answer questions, but he tried to answer questions with sound bites, with premeditated references back to what he said in his statement, and they were incomplete. Okay, it's a false accusation, fine, but help us understand what was false about it. Is it false in the sense that you weren't in the room at all? Is it false in the sense that you didn't know her at all? Is it false in the sense that there was consensual sex, not rape? What's false about it? Because there's a big difference between an incident being later characterized as non-consensual versus no incident at all. 
just somebody arbitrarily accuses someone of rape when there wasn't even contact. And those are all fair questions. When you have someone who shows up and says, I'm here to defend my honor and clear my name. You don't clear your name by saying, I didn't do it. You clear your name by surviving the test. Okay, I'm here to clear my name. Ask me any question. Okay, what happened that night? I'm innocent. Uh, Did you know the victim? I'm innocent. Was there consensual sex? I'm innocent. There, my name's cleared. See, that's the problem. That's the tactical error that Matt Patricia made from a PR standpoint because he's trying to win this thing in the court of public opinion. It's no longer about court of law. I assume the statute of limitations has expired. I, I doubt that 22 years later, if the alleged victim in the case finally has decided, you know what, I will go ahead and, and testify. Let's do it. I, I have a feeling that it's too late for that. There's nothing that could happen to Matt Patricia. Although, I, you know, and we've seen this in the political realm recently. There's been so many things happening in the political realm that I can't keep them all straight. But I, I guess there could be grounds for a defamation case now, but we don't know who the alleged victim even is. But if you come out and say it's a false claim, you're saying that the person was lying, and it technically is defamatory to call someone a liar if you do so in a way that damages their reputation. We don't even know who the alleged victim is. And that's the next step here. Does the alleged victim come forward or not? And somebody pointed out to me that most states have laws that protect an alleged victim of rape from being harassed and harangued by the media. It's not like the media is going to find out who she is and camp out on her lawn. And if they do, they're going to be potentially in trouble. There are ways to go about it. So the the aggressive effort to try to get her to talk, it may not be as effective as it would be if reporters were able to hound her and hound her and try to manipulate her. Because you'll have people saying, well, I mean, this guy's basically calling you a liar. And you may not have wanted to testify 22 years ago because you were going to face an aggressive cross-examination. You'll face no cross-examination. I'm basically going to let you tell your story with no pushback. I may ask a question or two to balance it out, like, why didn't you testify? But there's going to be a lot of value in getting this interview. So that's the next step. Does the alleged victim talk? And if she never does, I think this goes away. Unless the league office is overly sensitive about it, unless the league office sees this as an opening to ensure that that it takes these matters so seriously now, that, that we're taking it so seriously that the mere fact that there was enough evidence to indict someone when he was 21 years old, 22 years ago, that person is going to be nudged out of his job as a coach of one of the 32 NFL franchises. Unless the NFL wants to send a message that clear and is willing to sacrifice Matt Patricia. And, you know, I haven't mentioned this yet. I've had some people mention it to me privately. I've thought of it. I hate to think that the commissioner would be petty like this. But does the clown nose shirt in any way influence the way that the league office evaluates this situation? Either now or moving forward. 
Does the fact that Matt Patricia wore that shirt coming off of the airplane following Super Bowl 51, does that make the commissioner less inclined to take a little bit of a PR hit? Does that make the commissioner more inclined to nudge the Lions? Now, if there was going to be any nudging, the nudging as it relates to getting the Lions to not hire Matt Patricia, that would have happened before. And there are people in the NFL, not the league office, but people with teams who believe that, you know, that wouldn't have been beyond the realm of possibility, that the commissioner would have seen that as an opportunity to exact some sort of revenge because he was still upset about it. I think as of last July, he was still upset about the clown nose shirt that was worn by Matt Patricia. So that's kind of a weird factor here. And I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't know where, I don't know where it all goes from here. I think that my, here's what, here's what my gut tells me. If the alleged victim doesn't speak, if the alleged victim doesn't go to the media, tell her story, if that doesn't happen, then I think this all, this all goes away. If she tells her story and if it's effective and compelling and persuasive and, and it, you know, it brings a name, a voice, a face to this, then I think there's a chance that, that it could go south for Matt Patricia. So we'll see where that all goes from here. Let's turn the attention now to some of the questions that you have posed via the Twitter account at PFTPM Posse. The call was made. The bat, it was it a bat signal day? I can't remember what I use. I just find a Batman gif every day. I just find one that makes me laugh. So once I get the Twitter page to come up, and of course my internet is not cooperating as it often does. Here we go. All right. Where are we? Ah, 60 questions. Not bad. I made the call fairly close in time to when we got started today. PFTPM Posse per PFTA PM Posse member, that devil is mine. Will the Matt Patricia dilemma make the NFL force teams to do deeper background checks on all employees from here on on? I don't know about if they do them on all employees, but coaching hires, when you consider that Deadspin found this thing within a matter of seconds, a Nexus search, I think every organization will be doing it for high-profile hires. You probably should do it for all hires. Because one of the reasons the Patriots, I believe, didn't know about this, they hired Matt Patricia at such a low level, you don't take the time to do it then. As he rises through the ranks, you like him, you respect him, he's doing a good job, and the next thing you know, he's the defensive coordinator, and he's on deck to be a head coach somewhere, and the Patriots never knew about it. Here's the other thing, too. If you knew, What do you do if you knew about this? What, what do you do? if you're the Lions, and you found out that Matt Patricia had been indicted, do you just not hire him at all? Does it become a factor in the analysis? Well, okay, we've got this candidate, and, you know, we, we like what, what he did when he was an offensive coordinator, and uh, we look at the success he had and the offense that he ran, and we really like this guy. And then there's this Matt Patricia guy, and, you know, the time with Bill Belichick, and he's really smart, but he was indicted for rape 22 years ago. And I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm just trying to figure out how that becomes a factor. What does it do? Does knowing about it just give you a reason to strategize on on how you control the narrative and you have that come out? Do you have it come out before you hire him? Do you hire him and then bring it out then? 
what do you do? Because that's the thing. Most responsible employers won't ask about arrests. They'll only ask about convictions. And I don't think there's a specific law that says you can't ask about arrests. But I think that employers have decided, based upon the laws that are out there, not to ask about arrests. That if you ask about arrests, you may be potentially walking into a situation where you are are asking about something that could that could work to the disadvantage of certain members of the class of, of potential applicants. So you only ask about convictions. Convictions are relevant, arrests aren't. And I remember that from when I was practicing law and advising employers on what they could and couldn't do. And I know for a fact that the NFL advises teams not to ask incoming players at the scouting combine or during these pre-draft interviews about arrests, only about convictions. So I don't know what you do if you find out about it. Because it's not a conviction. It's just an indictment. And I don't mean to make light of it. It's still a big deal. But it's not the kind of thing you would even ask a guy about. So when you find out about something you wouldn't ask about, what do you do? Somebody's going to be in that dilemma in the future because they're going to be doing that that research that, that wasn't done, obviously, by the Lions. Another question from the PFTPM posse, originating with that devil is mine. What would the Lions' contingency plan be regarding Matt Patricia if the alleged victim decides to start talking and give interviews? This has powder keg potential. It does. And I don't know what you do at that point. Do you hire somebody from the outside? Do you bring back Jim Caldwell? I say that half-jokingly. You're paying him anyway, at least this year. Do you bring him back? Do you elevate Jim Bob Cooter? You know, he had an incident. Now, we all knew about that one. It wasn't an allegation of sexual assault, but I think the allegation was he ended up in someone's apartment and got in bed with her. And I don't know if it was the wrong place or it was just a weird kind of an incident that I think may have had some alcohol involved. I think I I may not be recalling all of the details accurately, but Jim Bob Cooter, the offensive coordinator, had something and he was almost fired last year. He was on the hot seat at one point. Matt Patricia decided to keep him around. I don't know what their contingency plan would be. I think it would be very wise for them to come up with one. I think that that the brain trust needs to get together and have a float chart. And it's a simple float chart. Does the alleged victim speak? Yes or no. If it's no, okay, everything's fine. If it's yes, is her story persuasive? Yes or no? If it's no, okay, fine. If it's yes, what's the public reaction to this? And the answer to that, fork in the road on the flow chart, is going to go a long way toward determining whether or not the Lions have to make a change. And if they make a change, they're probably going to have to pay Matt Patricia because I don't think that Patricia failing to volunteer this information would in any way constitute some sort of of cause to fire him. I wrote the item earlier today at PFT that if he really is a false accusation, if it really is, he did nothing wrong by concealing it. Why would you why would you lead with that? You show up in an interview and the first thing out of your mouth you tell him the worst possible thing that could come out about you. Hey, you know, just so you're aware. Just, I want to make sure there's, you know, th- th- there's no misunderstandings here. I, 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 you know, I was arrested for stealing a car and, you know, driving it into the bay. 
a couple of years ago. No charges were pressed, but I just want you to know that I got really drunk one night and, you know, I jumped in somebody's car and drove it into the bay. You may find out about that. Just want you to know. I mean, you don't, you don't, you're putting on your best possible face when you interview for a job and it's for the employer to find out. And again, I still, what would the Lions have done if they had found out? People assume they wouldn't have hired him. I don't know about that. I don't know that they wouldn't have hired him. I mean, they're rallying around him now in part because they'd probably have to pay him 16 to $20 million over the next four years if they didn't keep him. Another question via the PFTP and Posse. The fact that there are so many questions being posed about this reinforces my belief that this is a noteworthy story. What does the fact that a grand jury indicted Matt Patricia mean? Does it mean that the evidence was more against him and his co-defendant than for? Here's what it means. It means that the prosecutor and the authorities were ready to go. They were ready to prosecute. They were ready to attempt to put Matt Patricia and his co-defendant behind bars for rape. That's what it meant. Because if you're motivated to get an indictment, and they say all the time you can indict a ham sandwich if you want to. If you're motivated to indict someone, the grand jury process consists of a one-sided presentation of the evidence and the standard for returning what they call a true bill. The standard for indicting, it's low. It's probable cause to believe that the crime was committed, essentially. So if you're a prosecutor and you've decided, I want to take this to trial, I want to go the distance, I think that I can get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt, you put on your case in front of the grand jury, and since there isn't another lawyer there to fight you while you're trying to put on your case, it should be fairly easy. If you want, I mean, let's put it this way. If you're a prosecutor and there's someone that you decided you want to prosecute and you can't get a grand jury to agree, you probably need to rethink your career choices. I remember when Michael Vick was facing indictment in Virginia for his admission that he killed dogs because he didn't go to jail for killing dogs. And there may have been a legal challenge that you can't prosecute him in Virginia for killing dogs when he had already served time in the federal system for dogfighting and for gambling. But the prosecutor in Surrey County, Virginia, Gerald Poindexter, remember that name? blast from the past. He was the guy who was determined to bungle the Mike Vick case. And he bungled that indictment. He did not get a grand jury to indict Mike Vick on what should have been open and shut because he admitted to killing dogs. Remember, he killed the dogs that that weren't deemed worthy of dogfighting. That's separate from dogfighting. He didn't fight those dogs. He killed those dogs because he determined that those dogs weren't tough enough to fight. So what are we going to do with all these extra dogs? Well, we can keep them around and feed them and deal with their poop. Or we can just drown them or electrocute them and be done with them. I mean, most of them are going to die anyway while dogfighting. Think of the... I know there's going to be people who say, oh, it was a long time ago. Okay. It still happened. What kind of mindset do you have to have? What level of cruelty is necessary to not just pit dogs against each other for sport and amusement, but to come to the conscious decision that this dog here, this dog's too nice. This dog's too soft. This is a good boy. Let's kill him. This dog isn't going to go try to rip the ears off and the the throat out of another dog. This dog just wants to come lick your foot. Let's kill him. 
So anyway, that's an example that I can think of in the sports context where an indictment should have been easy. And I think it was deliberately not pursued the way that it should have been. What the indictment here means is that prosecutors were ready to go. Let's do this. We believe she's telling the truth. I don't know what other evidence they had, but they believe they had enough. But without her testifying, they didn't have enough. This comes up all the time when we talk about domestic violence, because usually there isn't another witness. When the complaining witness decides not to go forward, what can you do? So the indictment, again, means that there was somebody in law enforcement who is trained, experienced, and skilled, presumably, in, in determining what cases are strong and what cases aren't strong, and they were ready to go forward with the resources, the time, and the money to try to get a conviction. PFTPM Posse, Matt Yvonne, the salary cap continues to grow each year. Could you see a scenario where the cap actually declines? How would the league deal with that given the large quarterback contracts? Well, if you've got non-guaranteed money on the back end of a deal, significant money, and the cap goes down, you got a decision to make. Do you cut the guy or do you keep him? Because if a guy's due to make $25 million and the cap drops making his percentage of cap consumption go up. If you decide he's not worth it, do you run the risk of cutting him and someone else saying, ah, we're happy to give him $25 million. So the cap, except for when the system reconfigured in 2011 and the cap went down and then it went up just a little bit for 2012 and then a little bit for 2013, but really started going up after that, the cap's been in a growth cycle ever since. And as you do these commitments with Matt Ryan, Kirk Cousins, Kirk Cousins is only three years, but yeah, you're, you're stuck. There's nothing you can do. You can rip up the contract if you're in the portion that isn't guaranteed. But if you give somebody $100 million fully guaranteed like the Falcons have done, you're stuck. Now, look, the NFL has broadcasting contracts that, extend into the next decade. So they're going to make their money. I mean, unless all of a sudden the fans just decide they're not coming to the games at all, even then you're getting the broadcasting money. So the sal I don't see the salary cap dramatically dropping, but if it does, you're going to have a problem. You're going to have to make some tough decisions, some very tough decisions. You're going to have to cut some people. You're going to have to renegotiate some contracts. And quarterbacks may end up taking a bigger percentage of the cap than they currently do. Now, I will say this. Quarterbacks have been taking a less and less percentage of the cap because once it started spiking 10 million, 10 million, 10 million a year, the quarterback market wasn't going up a corresponding percentage. From 2000, really 2013 to 2016, the, the quarterback market didn't go up much at all. Now it is, but it's still behind where it should be. And uh, so if the cap all of a sudden starts to drop, I don't think it's going to be a huge issue. But if they start to see the trend, if they start to see it going the other way, that's when I think that maybe we'll see a, a flattening in the growth of the salary cap. It's a good question, but I just don't think that I, 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 I don't ever see the cap going down. And if it ever did, I think it would be a short-term thing, like if there would be a work stoppage again in 2021 or something like that. Recliner QB, love the 
Chris Sims interview yesterday. Definitely need more of those. Steph Boyardee chimes in. Best one yet. Oh, and I agree. A lot of good feedback from having Ian Rappaport on last week, but the, there was something about the Sims. And what I liked about it the most, it really did feel like I was just talking on the phone to a friend. And it's not something Chris and I ever do. We deal with each other on air six hours a week. We exchange text messages primarily the evening before we're getting ready for a show because there's a chain. Chris Sims, Stats, Matt Casey, and me. And we have some funny text exchanges, and but it's not the same as interacting verbally. And I don't spend a whole lot of time with him. Mondays, when we're done with the show during the season, I go to LaGuardia to come home. He goes to New York to go to Bleacher Report. I don't see him on Sundays because when he's on Football Night in America, he's typically at the game site. Every time he's been on Football Night in America, he's been at the game site. We just don't hang out. I don't talk on the phone a lot. First of all, I'm still convinced these things are going to give you cancer. So when I do talk, I try to do speaker. But I just, I don't like talking on the phone. I don't. I feel like it's horribly unproductive because I it, it's, it's the one time where you can't multitask. Like the rest of my day, I am, for example, watching TV and working. Sending text messages, but also working. Like, I can divert my attention between multiple things. When when you're on the phone, that's it. Like, even here, doing this, I can, like, I, I got a text message and I responded to it a couple minutes ago. Like, when I pause for effect, I'm taking care of business. I can check Twitter and see if anything's new. I can check my email and see if there's anything I'm missing. When you're on the phone, it's kind of hard to do that. You don't pause for effect very often when you're on the telephone. This isn't a pause for effect. This is me reading the next question to see if it's a good question to ask. Recliner QB. With the seemingly inevitable coaching change coming in Cleveland next year, who do you think will get consideration? Who does John Dorsey already have in mind? And did he consult with him before choosing Baker Mayfield number one overall? I think whoever is on the short list in John Dorsey's mind of the coach he would hire, I think he consulted with that person before he picked Baker Mayfield. Very easy to do. No one's even going to know. No, no one, no one knows that you're specifically targeting this person or that person to be the next coach of the Browns. Be foolish not to. And I doubt that John Dorsey has decided, based upon what he's seen from the Browns the last two years, that he likes the cut of Hugh Jackson's jib and wants him to continue to be the coach no matter what happens this year. The guy's won one game in two years. Oh, and sixteen. You know my position. It should be part of the PFTPM Posse official pledge. I pledge to say that anyone who ever goes 0-16 is unfit to ever be a head coach in the NFL ever again. Rod Marinelli, Hugh Jackson, neither guy should ever be a head coach again. Hugh Jackson is. I, I don't think he will be after this year. But I don't know who exactly he'd target. You look at every stop that... John Dorsey's had, every coach he's been exposed to, every coach he's worked with. And that's that's where you start. That's how you make your list. Who's he worked with? Now, there's a chance he's worked with somebody that he doesn't like. You know, we, we connect dots all the time. Well, okay, well, this player played with this coach before. Well, maybe they think each other are assholes. It's entirely possible. It's entirely possible that the past working experience is a detriment to a reunion. 
Recliner QB, what do you believe will be the most contentious issues in the upcoming CBA negotiations? The last CBA majorly screwed the NFLPA, so why is D. Smith still in charge? Why is the NFLPA the worst? The worst. They're the worst union in American pro sports. Look, now, I can tell by your question, Recliner QB, you got a point of view here. You got a little bit of an agenda that has crept into the asking of the question. You've kind of given yourself away as to what you think of the NFLPA and its leadership. Let me say this, because it became very trendy 2012-2013 to criticize the deal that was done by D. Smith and the NFL Players Association. Here's what I believe. I believe that because the management of the NFLPA has not applied its lips to the collective asses of the agents the way that the agents would like, I think there have been a lot of agents who have been privately complaining about D. Smith and the union and the deal that they did. And a lot of this is agents who have relationships with people in the media constantly badgering the people in the media to write about the problems with the CBA, that this is their way of getting back at D. Smith and the current management of the NFLPA. So anytime I feel like something like that is happening, my natural inclination is to push back against it. Number one, to call it out. Number two, to push back against it. Now, should D. Smith be finding a way to work with the agents and coexist and have a symbiotic relationship? Yes. But I don't think it's appropriate for people to, to slant and skew what happened in 2011 in a way to make D. Smith look bad. Because here's the bottom line. There's no way in hell players were missing game checks in 2011. And I think the union will enter 2021 with that same attitude. There's no way players are going to miss game checks. There's no way that a guy who is playing now and only has so many years left to play is going to take a stand and sacrifice major income for the benefit of someone who's still in high school. They're just not going to do it. The one difference I see this time around, you could see players rationalizing a work stoppage by saying, well, we now know so much about health and safety that it actually would be good for us to take a year off. We've been playing football every year since we were little boys, and this would be a good time to just take a year off and we'll come back and play next year. The problem is some of those guys still aren't going to be desirable the following year because they'll be a year older and there'll be another crop of incoming rookies who are younger and cheaper and have more tread on the tires. So who cares if you took a year off? Get the hell out of here. You had one more year to play and you didn't and you blew it. Goodbye. The other side of it is this. If the NFLPA is serious about taking a stand, they need to have plans in place to play alternative games, to set up their own league, to give the fans something they can watch that has the players we all know about, the names we recognize, the players that we like to put on our fantasy football teams that would be the alternative to the replacement players. And, you know, this comes up from time to time. I haven't thought about this in a while. Think about what a mess the NFL will have on its hands if there's a strike a couple of weeks into the 2021 season, we've all got our fantasy rosters set. What in the hell do you do if all the players walk off the job and the owners hire replacements? What do you do? 
Now, it doesn't really affect daily fantasy. In fact, that could be the thing daily fantasy wants more than anything else. Because you'd have to abandon your regular fantasy team and just play daily fantasy. But if the players want to have maximum leverage, they need to convince the NFL that they're willing to walk away. And if they have a viable alternative where they can make revenue, that's the best way to do it. And I've said this for a while. If you're truly serious about a strike, you need to be making the plans now to have a league ready to go. And look, you're not going to have a broadcast partner because anybody who ever wants to do business with the NFL, they're not going to put the NFL PA games on the air. You still fi- you find something. You stream it, pay-per-view, I don't know. You find something. You have something ready to go where you have a model for making money at a time when the NFL would be shut down. So I'm not answering the question yet. The most contentious issues... You know, we hear the rumbling from time to time about the commissioner's power. I don't know how big of a deal that becomes, though. How much will all players give up to benefit as a practical matter one or two a year? Are you really going to give something up? Are you going to give up money to help the one or two guys per year that, you know, they probably deserved it. They were too close to the line. Even if they are getting screwed, you probably did something to deserve it. At a minimum, you're dumb, just like the substance abuse policy. We talked about that yesterday with Chris Sims. He failed three separate annual drug tests because he was a little dumb. He knew. He knew on that Friday night when he was hanging out with his friends that the window was opening soon for drug testing, and he decided, ah, screw it. I'm going to have fun. So, so anyway... I, I answered a different question primarily because I think the premise assumes that that the NFLPA, the leadership of the NFLPA is a big part of the problem. The problem is the players. The players aren't willing and in many cases aren't able to suddenly do without the money that would have come from playing football in what will be this time around the 2021 season. Sergio D, great interview with Chris Sims based on what Chris said. Is the Rooney rule a farce when the only way you can get your foot in the door is by knowing someone? I wouldn't say it's a farce because eventually if you get a proper representation of African-American head coaches in the NFL, if you get to the point where there's more, where there's enough, where there's a critical mass, then they're the ones who have the discretion to say, I'm going to hire this guy to be a low-level assistant. I'm going to hire that guy, like a Mike Tomlin. Tony Dungy mentioned that today. Mike Tomlin doesn't get an opportunity. If you just go by the standard same old back-scratching, if you have a coach who's trying to promote and increase the representation of African-American coaches at the lower levels. That's how you get guys in those jobs and give them a chance to grow and give them a chance to flourish. But when it's predominantly white coaches and it's, okay, I'm going to hire your son, you hire my son. Um, And you've got the friend who's the lawyer who's white, and I'm going to give your son a job. And, And the ownership is calling in favors. And ownership is predominantly white. That's how it happens. It was a very... It was a very thoughtful and compelling answer by Chris Sims. Now, Dungy didn't agree with the idea that money is a factor. I still think it is. 
Because I think you come out of college and you've got major student loans and you've got a family. And if you don't have someone who is going to peel off enough money for the phone bill, if anybody even, well, I guess it's the cell bill now, or, you know, the electricity bill, the rent, you're going to go through some lean years. It's going to be hard to make make ends meet while you're in that early stage of your career. Things better happen quickly. And, and I think that, that, that that's more of a socioeconomic observation. Regardless of race, you're going to have some people who just can't do it. I know for me, not that, not that I would have wanted to do it, but if I would have been interested in getting into coaching or getting into some low-level position where you work your way up with a team, there's no way in hell I could have done it coming out of school. My parents would have killed me. They wouldn't have been able to finance it, first of all. And who's going to pay my student loans while I'm making nothing? How am I going to pull this off? Especially if you have a family. So, and I know that that's the proving ground. You go in there and you basically allow yourself to be overworked and underpaid to prove that you love it. And through that fire, the thinking is, emerges the best possible talent. I don't know if that's the best way to do it. That's just the way it's done. Matthew Farley, if Peter King and Chris Sims are in a burning building and you can only rescue one, who are you getting? I'm not big into hypotheticals like that, but probably Chris, because he'd reward me with some of his weed. Not that I smoke any, but I'd probably need some after rescuing someone from the burning building and leaving behind one of my friends. I'd probably need a little indica. I didn't even know what that was yesterday. Sativa and indica. I'd need a little indica after that experience, and I don't think that Peter has any of the hippie lettuce in his dungarees. The real forno, how alarming is it to the league office that Matt Patricia allegations got through two organizations? Is it safe to assume the NFL might, if they haven't already, start mandating background checks? Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I know we've already addressed that, but yes. Andrew Yeh, if you were Matt Patricia, which interviewer would you choose to do the one-on-one interview to tell your story? Oh, man, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think a lot of it depends upon, well, first of all, there's no reason to do the one-on-one interview until the accused or the, the alleged victim, not the accused victim. The, I'm getting my A words, my, my, my legal A words wrong. Not accused victim, the alleged victim. If she gives an interview and if it hits the mark, And if it creates a situation where, in the court of public opinion, Matt Patricia had better trim that beard, take the pencil out of his ear, put on a suit, and sit down and do an interview. I mean, if it gets to that point, and you know what, I hate to make it about gender, but remember after Ray Rice and the commissioner was taking all that public criticism? I think it was Nora O'Donnell from CBS that did the interview. And I think most people who get it said, yeah, I mean, he felt compelled to be interviewed by a female because of the subject matter. And I think Matt Patricia would feel compelled to be interviewed by a female because of the, the subject matter. And I mean, I know some people may say, oh, don't make it about gender, but I, 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 it's all a show. It's all PR. You're trying to get the best possible reaction by the public to this situation. And I assume that that's the way they would handle it. So, and I don't know whether you go with a news. See, when you go with a news person versus a sports person, you're going to have a different 
background coming to it. And and the more well-known the person is, that, that makes it feel like a bigger deal, whether it's male or female. That makes it feel like it's a bigger deal. Do you want it to feel like it's a bigger deal? Do you want somebody who has a reputation for asking tough questions? So you'll take... You'll take the tough questions and come out of it, you know, feeling like you've been a little bit verbally battered. Do you need to do that? You know, it's a, it's a tough, it's a, I'm not a PR expert, but I know enough about PR from covering the NFL that there's a lot of factors that go into it. And I guarantee you, gender is going to be one of the factors. It will be. From a PR perspective, it will be. And how much of a beating verbally how much of a finger-wagging Matt Patricia is going to take or needs to take, that'll be part of it too. Does there need to be a symbolic dressing down, a symbolic turning of the tables of Matt Patricia? Does the audience want to, will will the audience view him more sympathetically if he gets roughed up verbally during this interview? Those are all factors that go into it. So I don't know. It's a good, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's fun to ponder. Nothing's fun about this. It's intriguing to ponder how the PR professionals would handle it. Because, look, I, I'm not a big fan of how the PR professionals handled yesterday. My advice to Matt Patricia would have been, you go in there, you don't have a statement, you go in there, don't talk about having two older sisters. I, I don't like it when people resort to that. Like, I'm not capable of violence against a female because there are females in my life. I mean, I'd say most people who do commit violence against women, they probably have females in their life. At a minimum, they were born. They all have a mother. So I, I, I would just go in and tell a passionate, heartfelt story and answer the questions that are asked or don't answer any questions at all. But once you cross that bridge... Once you make that decision to answer questions, if it's a false accusation, you better be ready to tell the truth. Don't just say it's a false accusation. I mean, I I could tell that somebody came up with the line, what happened that night doesn't matter. What matters is what did happen. And I don't think he quite delivered it the way it was scripted by whoever gave him that line. But... I'm not, I see, I, because the press conference ended up raising questions and ended up heightening curiosity and making people want to know more, you don't want people coming out of that press conference wanting to know more. You want them to come out of it feeling like I've heard everything I want to hear. So, and again, this is, I'm spitballing here because PR is a huge part of this. The PR profession, and there are people there, you know, whether they want to call it crisis management, whatever. You will, if, if it gets to the point where the accu- the accused victim, I almost did it again. Wait, I'm gonna, that's going to be my new, my new hiccup. The alleged victim tells a story and they feel that it's time for Matt Patricia to go forward. There will be someone hired and whoever is hired, once you hand the keys to that person, they're going to have a strategy and it may, there's no right or wrong answer. There's no numbers you put in a calculator. Maybe if they pick a female to do the interview, it's too obvious. Maybe they do next level PR analysis and say, well, maybe it should be a male because if it's a female, it's like, oh, of course you picked a female. Of course. 
But every step, everything, what from what you wear to how much you trim back that beard, are you in your coaching gear? Are you in a suit? Where do you do it? What kind of room? Should it be the locker room? Should it be your office? Should it be your house? Should it be outside? Should it be inside? Should it be day? Should it be night? These are all, every single factor is considered. And just because you consider every single factor doesn't mean the person who's making the consideration is getting it right. So it's all moot for now, but it could become very relevant sooner rather than later. Andrew, yay, should we protect the identity of the alleged perpetrators in sexual assault cases? We rightfully protect the accuser's identity, but doesn't the accused perpetrator deserve the protection if found innocent? Is it even feasible? I don't think it's feasible. I don't think you can indict someone without word getting out that they've been indicted by a grand jury and they're facing trial. I don't think you can do that. I don't think we're going to have a secret justice system. Now, look, the protection of the alleged victim, I got it right that time, doesn't extend to some of the things we see in third world countries like testifying behind a curtain. There still is a right by the accused to confront the person making the allegations. The, the criminal justice system is far from perfect when it comes to rape cases, domestic violence. It's far from perfect. It's supposed to be about getting to the truth. There are real impediments, real human impediments to getting to the truth in cases like this. And I'd say a lot of guys, especially when you already have a system that is set up where it's better to have 10 guilty men go free than to have one person wrongfully incarcerated. I think a lot of guilty domestic abusers and or rapists walk because of the imperfections in the system. Recliner QB. Does NBC shrink your suits or do they give you a new and smaller sized one each week? Why don't you try low impact weight training, cut fat, build tone muscle all while slimming? I still do and I've had six shoulder surgeries. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the... Thank you for the free uh, training advice. Now, I, and I've been saying recently that I've been trying to watch what I eat because NBC keeps shrinking my suits. They do supply me with a suit every week. It's not a new suit, and I don't take it home. There's a collection of suits that I have. And they usually they measure you. They, I've been measured a few times. Usually the goal is just go back being the same size that you were the prior year. Then you don't have a problem. The problem I'm going to have this year is, and, and I don't think it's going to be a big problem. I've dropped about 15 pounds since the scouting combine. So I think my suits will fit okay. They may be a little bit, I may have a little extra room. Not much. They were getting a little snug. A- anytime that, and, and I would do that, every, like, because I, I, I never remembered what the pants looked like that fit well. I just knew there were some that fit well, and for some, it's like that, you know, you got you to inhale real quick as you, and suck it in while you, you, you latch them. And, and I remember every Sunday, as I make the walk, and it's a fairly, you know, you got, you got like a 45-second walk from where we watch the games to where my dressing room is. Because at NBC facility, it's, it's big. It's an old Clairol factory, and it's, it's, a, it's a great place to, to work at. On that walk, inevitably, at some point, it would cross my mind. I got to put that damn suit on and flip the coin. Either the pants are going to fit okay, or I'm not going to be able to fasten them. And I got to the point late in the season where I just didn't even bother. It's like, oh, the belt covers it up, and it's not like they see the top of my pants anyway. So it, it was t- it was time to uh, 
to combat the shrinking of the suits. I primarily do cardio. I do some weight training at the house. I've done the P90X routines in the past. They're a little too, they're a little too high, high impact. And you get a little too, it's just a little too, it's, it's too much. It's too much. They have a new 10 minute version that I bought back in February and I haven't used yet. See, coming up next week is the last trip of the year before the start of the regular season. So I'll be home pretty much continuously after that. So that so I've been telling myself after this next New York trip for the upfronts, we have a client dinner on Monday night. We'll do well, Joe and I usually stick around for a day or two after that, but uh, once I get home from that, then that that we'll find out whether or not I actually commit to something aimed at, you know, defying gravity a little bit better than I currently am. But uh, uh, I, I still want to I still want to drop I you know I say I want to drop another another five. I don't know. I think saying that is what'll keep me where I am. Because if you if you're you know what happens the moment you're happy where you are, you automatically put five back on. All right, we've been going for over an hour. Let's see what's going on here. Let's answer another question or two. Matthew Farley, do you own this? Oh my God, I've never seen that before. It's grotesque. It's a it's a glass that has a hole for a cigar in it, so you can smoke your cigar while you're drinking your drink. I, I don't like that. I I mean, it's kind of an optical illusion. You need to look at the the Batman tweet from today and scroll down to the Matthew Farley question. Yeah, I don't like that because here's the thing, I I smoke it all the way down to the nub. And uh, it looks like you wouldn't have to, you, 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 you'd start, you'd start uh, infringing upon the, 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 the glass. You'd start, it wouldn't melt the glass, but it would like turn it all nasty. You'd have a bunch of, you know, like burn marks. Now I don't like that. I don't like that. Here's Farley attributing a quote to me, a wise man. Once said, you can't give your enemies the bird if your hands are full. The wise man was me, and I'll give you all the bird because my hands are no longer full. Yeah, I mean, I guess you got your drink and your cigar in one hand, so you have another hand free to give people the bird. Steve, Al- or yeah, Sean Alvishar or Steve Alvishar. I'm reading the question prematurely. If Steve Carell committed to it, would you be up for an office reboot? Absolutely, without question. Without question, all in for an office reboot. Let's see what else we have here. I'm looking. I always like to find something. It's you know, it's the end of the week. It's been a good week. We've done this every day. I'm looking for one good one that uh, that we can that we can end the week with. And uh, I'm failing. The real Forno. Will Adrian Peterson get another shot in the NFL without a major injury? No. I, I think he's just got to wait. He's got to wait for somebody else to to end up uh, getting injured. Black 88 Elite, did you notice that Stats seemingly is a closet PFTPM listener? He's not. He's not. He listened yesterday despite his inclinations because he knew there was the possibility there was something from that podcast we could use on the show today. And we ended up using two things. We used the hot soup story and also Chris Sims telling the story of the day he almost died on the field. And he started listening to it with his son, who is three, in the room. And his son heard the first Chris Sims F-bomb of the podcast. And at that point, stats turned it off. So 
thanks to the PFTPM posse, the vocabulary of Thomas Guerrera has been expanded. Our work here is done. Our week here is done. You know, I'm probably going to have to not do this Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. I hadn't thought of that. I have to figure out what we're going to do about the PFTPM podcast when I'm in New York. I just thought of that right now. Boy, that's stupid. I've got a portable podcast thingamajig that I could maybe do Monday and Tuesday from the hotel room. Maybe we'll do that. That'll be the tentative plan. I took that thing with me one other time, though, and I didn't use it. I don't even know where it is right now. First, I got to find it. Once I find it, then I'll decide whether or not I want to schlep it with me. It's not really big, but maybe we take it to New York and maybe we do a hotel room podcast Monday and Tuesday because otherwise we won't be doing one until next Thursday at the earliest. So I apologize in advance if we end up not doing this Monday or Tuesday, but uh, now I got to add to my list. I always make a list, everything I got to remember to take with me, and I always forget something. So now there's one more thing on the list. Enhancing the chances I will forget something, the podcast, the portable podcast thingamajig, whatever it's called. So if I remember to take it, maybe we'll do this Monday or Tuesday. I'm going to try to do it. Otherwise, PFT Live, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all from 30 Rock. Check us out all weekend long at profootballtalk.com. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. I once I once saw some I once saw two guys greet each other somewhere on Mother's Day and one said Happy Mother's Day to the other and I thought what in the hell is that? So I'm not going to do a general Happy Mother's Day. It's only Happy Mother's Day if you're a mother, right? All right. Now that we've solved that problem, we can move on with our lives. Have a great weekend. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.